Marriage as God designed it, marriage is built to last. Paul said, I want to know, I want you to know right up front that if you decide to get married, it's a great thing. I just want you to know it's going to be tough. Last Sunday morning, we began a three-week series on marriage and family relationships. Last Sunday morning, I talked to you about the fact that some of the most important decisions of life are made in a very short time span. Somewhere around 10 to 30, age 10 to 30, almost every major decision in life is made during that short time span. So it's really important for us who minister to that age group on a regular basis here at Community Alliance Church to do everything we possibly can to make sure we give them a great foundation and build into their lives a foundation that will last a lifetime and will help them as they continue to make some of the most serious decisions of life. We also said last Sunday morning it's really important that you who are parents who have more time with them than we do, do everything you possibly can to not only support our ministries and encourage your children to be involved in that, but to make sure in front of them is a model that they would want to follow and want to continue on in their life journey together. One of those major decisions that we talked about last Sunday morning is marriage. Almost 80% of Americans at one point or the other will be married or decide to get married. And so it impacts a very large portion of our society. I also know that any audience like ours are some who've been married, who aren't any longer, who've gone through the pains of divorce, who've understood infidelity. And know when I talk about what I'm about to share over the next 20 minutes together, it's incredibly painful to hear it again. It's never my intention to cause you any pain. But it is my intention to make sure that those that sit in our audience on a regular basis have the opportunity to hear what God has designed and what he wants it to be. So that as the impact of the next generation behind you is seen or evident, you will know that we've done our best. And I've done what I believe God's calling me to do to help you understand the significance of this wonderful decision that we make when we choose a mate. Thursday night, I had the opportunity, got out of here quick to try to get down through all the traffic of 79 and 70 to take my parents out to supper as my brother and I went with them as they celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. My wife and I have celebrated, go ahead, thank you. My wife and I have celebrated 30 year, 38 years together. It's hard to believe that our next major event is going to be 40 years of marriage. As I watched them on Thursday night and saw them still laughing and enjoying one another's company and still sharing together after 60 years and the love they share, I, I'm so grateful for the model that I've seen, for those who have walked before me. But I know it's not like that for everyone, and for some it's a very difficult time. Not everyone has great positive role models, and I know, believe me, as I stand here this morning, that so many families and so many couples are looking for positive role models that they can emulate. Unfortunately, they don't see many. Every couple that I have come before me in premarital counseling, I ask them a, a series of questions, but one of them are, who are your models? Who are the ones that you look to to say, that's a great marriage? I love to watch them. I enjoy being around them. I, it's fun to see them. <laughs> Somebody at church a couple of weeks ago said to my parents, it is so nice to see you and Mike still holding hands after 60 years of marriage. I hope when we get that age, we'll still hold hands and be in love as you are. She looked at her and said, honey, we're still in love, but he's actually holding me up now. <laughs> so sadly, when I asked them that question, who are your models, they don't have a lot of answers. Many will say their parents, and many, many more will say their grandparents, often, more often than their parents. And you'll see why in a moment. The transitions that our society has gone through makes it even more difficult as we watch the life around us unfold. 
The Industrial Revolution dramatically changed the family structure. Before that, most of the world was an agrarian society. Agriculture was a dominant lifestyle, family structure, and source of income. Families spent a lot of time together. Both parents played a significant role in the developmental stages of their children's lives. I grew up that way. My parents were around, both mom and dad, all the time. It wasn't wait till your dad gets home from work. He beat me then. No, he didn't. Children were taught how to work, taught how to take responsibility for their actions and their achievements. Family life centered around the home. Scripture was written within the framework of that kind of society. The Industrial Revolution not only changed society, but it had a very significant impact on family life. Dads are now working outside the home, many of them in many cases hours upon end. Kids don't have the kind of influence that they used to have, and now family life begins to change. Then came the technological age that you and I are part of right now. And this nuclear family that revolves around one another in so many activities began to unravel. Now everyone has something to do. Every single family member has something to occupy their time, their energy, and their focus. Remember a couple of years ago, Pastor Bill talking about that fact with the kids that he had seen come through his doors in the last 27 years of youth ministry and said, what I see now is our kids being so experienced rich but relationally poor. And that's one of the reasons. Technology originally designed to make our lives simple has also made it much more complicated. Now, every member of the family has something to do with their hands. Every member of the family has a way to communicate with so many other people, but hardly themselves. A few years ago, USA Today had a large article entitled, No Child Left Inside. It was a spinoff of the educational reform, No Child Left Behind. As they began to realize that our children have now so many things to occupy their time and their energy that they stay inside for so long and fail to appreciate the incredible gift that God has given us outside their door. Last, sat, or last night after the, everything was over, went home and went up on what I call Denny's Landing outside where I live and began to go over my sermon and I looked up into the sky and I was just overwhelmed with the, with the sunset. I don't know if it was where you were, Herm, Herman, we get a really nice one but it lasts real short where I live. And I watched it in almost every single moment as time went by, it seemed like God was painting another piece to the structure and painting another part of the portrait. And as I sang, how, how great you are this morning, that's the first thought that was in my mind when I saw this incredible gift that God gives us outside our door on a regular basis as he paints a portrait for us every morning and every night and gives us so much around for us to enjoy. We'll talk even more about that next Sunday morning. But so sadly, so many kids have found so many things to occupy their time and their energy that they fail to appreciate what's outside their door, let alone leading to the enormous problem we have today with obesity. Not only have we moved through a variety of stages between the agricultural society and the industrial revolution and the technological world in which we live, we've seen an enormous amount of social change. World, world wars, Korea, Vietnam, the rise and fall and rise and fall of communism, the Middle East, 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, the consummate threat of nuclear holocaust. In the last 50 years, we've seen the racial revolution of the 50s, the social revolution of the 60s, legalized abortion, the AIDS epidemic, gay and lesbian movements, same-sex marriage, both have enormous social implications, let alone biblical consequences. Tsunamis, earthquake, the unrest in North Africa and the Middle East. Can you imagine what the next 20 years are going to bring, let alone what we've seen in just the last 50 years? One of the couples in our small group said their six-year-old the other day was with her somewhere, and they were seeing news things unfold about Syria and Yemen. 
And he was asking, where are these places? Six-year-old, right? Where are these places? And his mom began to say where they are and what's taking place. And this little six-year-old said this, I don't get what's going on. First in Egypt, then in Syria, now Yemen. What in the world is going to happen? A six-year-old was overwhelmed with what's taking place in the world around him. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in the next 20 years as we begin to see life change so dramatically? That's why we've got to do everything we possibly can to provide as much stability as we can to our children as they grow up in an ever-changing world. Fascinating trends on marriage. A couple of weeks ago, I was putting this very series together, and I was listening to NBC. I was drinking coffee in the morning, and on the Today program, they had a lady, a number of people who have written about the generations of marriage and what they have seen in the last 50 years in regards to marriage. One of the things they have found is that the Gen X generation, or it's what they're calling them, born between 1965 and 1980, are sticking it out in marriage much longer than a generation before them, my specific generation, which is in many cases why I said to you, so many of them list their grandparents as models more than my generation. Almost half of them came from divorced families in the 60s or in the 70s and 80s. If you're unhappy or unsatisfied, leave. Find someone else. What happened during those years of the Woodstock generation when free love and free sex was everywhere in the 60s and 70s, no one ever realized, although everyone was saying at that time, you're going to pay an enormous price for this lifestyle. It happened. And now those who were born later than that, from 65 to 80, are saying we cannot continue to repeat the same mistakes as our parents. Children of the 80s faced a divorce rate twice as high as parents married in the 60s. And now from those who were married from 1990 on, three out of four celebrated their 10th anniversary desiring not to repeat their parents' mistakes. They worked harder at finding a mate and they worked really hard at their marriage. Great marriage takes an enormous amount of work. Paul said, I just want you to know, if you get married, it's gonna be difficult. One of my favorite comedians is Ken Davis. Listen to him on Family Life Network every once in a while and the other day he was talking about a couple who is obviously in the male situation, he wasn't very assertive or dominant. Wasn't assertive at all and finally went to a Christian counselor, sent him to some therapy and then decided, decided to send him some books and then all of a sudden to see the change that take place. The guy came home after a number of sessions and finally announced to his wife, I want you to know right now I'm the man of the house. As a matter of fact, I want you to fix the most amazing meal for me tonight you've ever fixed in all of your life. And when that is over... I want you to fix for me the most incredible dessert I've ever eaten in all of my life. And when dessert is over, I want you to go upstairs and draw me a bath. And when that bath is over, do you know who's going to dress me and fix my hair? She said, yep, the funeral director. <laughs> Got my water. <laughs> God's design for marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to take you on a little journey from beginning to end, just for a few moments, out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then the culmination of God's desire in reversing what happened in chapter 3 in Ephesians chapter 5. God's design for marriage begins at the beginning of the story of humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, 18, God's finishing his creative work and every time he's done with a certain aspect of it, as one day's completed and he looks at what he has done, he said, this is good. <laughs> when I looked at that sunset last night, I thought, boy, God, you were amazing. That was really good. 
Tomorrow night, I get another one. Kind of when we were praying last night, said, God, I can't even imagine what heaven looks like. If you did that in one day, in one moment, with one stroke of your brush, can you imagine what heaven's looking like or going to look like after 2,000 years of creative wonder? And after every piece of creation, God said, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he creates man and says what? I know, ladies, I can do better than that. I know that's what you think. But he said, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. It's not finished. It's not complete. And like the master craftsman, he says this. Let me do the finishing touch that I need to do. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God commands, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed it up with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib. and He had taken out a man. He brought it to the man. The man said, this is bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And now the master craftsman, the master creator said, this is good. I'm done. I'm finished. In a book that I've referred to before, one of my favorite, John and Stacey Eldridge, a book called Captivating, as John is one of my favorite authors, he says this, Eve's not an afterthought. She's not a nice addition like an ornament on a tree. She is God's final finishing touch, the crowning moment of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, you see the perfect description of God's design for a marriage, the perfect description of what God wanted this relationship to be. For every couple, I know it was in our wedding over 38 years ago, and every couple ever since, in all the weddings that I've done, I read something that's over 300 years old that says this, marriage is the first interpersonal relationship that man has ever known. Scriptures tell us that Adam was created first in a perfect environment, surrounded by other living creatures, but companionship on his level was missing, and God wasn't done yet. He created another human being, not a man to just have friendship with, but a woman to share his affections with. Not a man to compete against, but a woman to confide in. This is the part I love. The woman was not created out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. That's God's design. Oneness, harmony, equality. Headship, absolutely. But it's not an issue here. Genesis chapter 2 gives us the specific details in the creation of woman. Chapter 1 gives us a broader picture. And in that context, you see the creation again, story repeated, which we see later in chapter 2, and God says this. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then it says this, and then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God blessed them. God said to them, multiply, subdue. God's design is co-regency, a team effort. The mission to be fruitful and conquer the earth and run it was given both to Adam and Eve. God said to them, Eve is standing right there when God gives the world over to us. She has a vital role to play, a partner in this incredible adventure. All that human beings were intended to do here on this earth in a marital relationship were intended to do together. When God creates Eve, he calls her in Hebrew an Ezer Keneged. Not good for man to be alone. I will make him an Ezer Keneged. Hebrew scholars have a hard time throughout the years trying to translate that. Many translate it to the English word helper or companion or the notorious help meet. I love Eldridge who says this. What is a help meet anyway? 
What little girl dances through the house saying, one day I want to be a helpmeet? What is that, a companion? A dog can be a companion. Surely God meant more than that. Robert Alter, who translates Hebrew as well as anyone, I think comes the closest when he translates Ezer Keneged. He will call her an Ezer Keneged. It means sustainer beside him. The word Ezer is used in only 20 other places in the Old Testament. In every other instance, the person described is God himself. When you desperately need him to come through for you. Deuteronomy 33, there's no one like God who rides in the heavens to help you. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Psalm 33, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In most of the contexts of life and death, God is our only hope. He comes in as our easer. If he's not there beside us, we will not survive. Another great translation of easer is lifesaver. Now, Keneged means to come alongside, a, a counterpart. The New Testament connection is the role of the Holy Spirit, which means our paraclete to walk alongside, which why is now you know, why as a man, the voice of the Holy Spirit and your wife's voice sounds so familiar or similar to one another because that's the intended design. In the book Captivating, Eldridge writes this, that longing in the heart of a woman to share life together as a great adventure comes straight from the heart of God who longs for the same. God doesn't want to be an option in our lives. He doesn't want to be a tag-along, and neither does any woman. God is essential. He wants us to need him desperately. In a marital relationship, Eve is essential. She has an irreplaceable role to play. That was God's design from the beginning, a marriage built to last. Then came the fall, and the design is shattered. The woman, convinced that God was holding out on her, convinced that in order to have the best possible life, she takes matters into her own hands. And so she does. And disobeying God's command, she violates her very essence. See, she's supposed to be Adam's Ezer Keneged, like the one who comes to save. She's to bring him life. Instead, she invites him to death. Now, to be fair, Adam doesn't respond. Where is Adam in the middle of the temptation? He's right beside her. She gave it to him also, her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The Hebrew word with her means right there, elbow to elbow. Adam's not in another part of the garden anywhere. He's standing right there watching the whole thing unravel. And what does he do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Doesn't lift a finger. Doesn't say a word. He won't risk. He won't fight. He won't rescue. Our father, the real Adam, the real man, the first man, gave in to paralysis, denied his very nature and went passive. And every man after him, if not careful, can end up doing the same. I see it all the time. Man, just when you need them to come through, they check out. They disappear. They go silent. They get passive. He won't talk to me is one of the phrases that I hear all the time. From women all the time. He just won't talk to me. I just don't know what he thinks. I just don't know how he feels. He just won't share. Is what I hear all the time. And women tend to be grasping, reaching, and controlling, often enchanted like Eve, they fall prey to the enemy's lies and they decide if I can't have what I need, I gotta get it myself. Sin, selfishness, and passivity enter the picture and destroy God's design. Marriage as God designs it suffers the consequences. The innocence that they saw in the garden emotionally and relationally and spiritually is shattered. The co-regency, the oneness is gone. Then comes the curse. God said in Genesis 3, I'll greatly increase your pain in childbearing. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. 
that he will rule over you, you will fight against this, is a result of the curse. It is not how God designed it to be. Headship before the fall? Absolutely, that's what God intended. Ruling over, dominating, that's not what God intended at all. Before the curse, unity, mutual submission. Now because of sin, male domination, female manipulation. And we see it all the time, over and over and over again. Marriage dominated by Satan, sin, and society, and we see it for thousands of years. We see it in our day every day as we turn the TV on. Days of our lives, no life to live, the young and the useless, wife swap, desperate housewives. In Genesis, you see God's standard in chapter 2, 2 becoming 1. In chapter 3, sin destroys God's standard. By chapter 4, you see polygamy. Chapter 16, adultery. Chapter 19, homosexuality. Chapter 13, 38, incest. And we're not even out of Genesis yet. You know why marriage is so tough? We bought the lie. That God is holding out on us. That we have to get it for ourselves. It's all about me and whatever I can get out of this life. Instead of giving our life away and giving it up for the person that God has brought into our lives. Sin, society, and Satan have brought out an all-out war. And its number one focus seems to be the home. Even in a church, sometimes when you see a man who really does love his wife, who's really serving his wife and family, you have people even within the church say, well, we know who runs that home. We have some men who think that what it means to be the head of the home is to sit back and give orders. On how God designed it in Genesis. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman. Taken out of man. How do you get that back? One great verse to start. Is Ephesians chapter 5. Where God said be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. Don't give in to other things. In that case in verse 18. Don't get drunk on wine. Which leads to debauchery. Instead be filled with the spirit. Empty yourself. Give your life to Christ and be filled with the Spirit. Everything changes when you give your life to Christ. Everything should change when you give your life to Christ. And then place yourself under the control of His Spirit where it's no longer about me or what I want or what I can get out of this relationship, but it's about what I can give and how I can serve and how I can love. That's why He says in verse 18, (laughs) be continually filled with, dominated with, controlled by the Spirit of God. And when that happens... All the relationships in my life begin to line up according to God's plan. Instead of being selfish and self-centered, I submit to God. It's not about me anymore. Paul said, let me tell you how to illustrate that. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't provoke your kids. Christian marriages and Christian homes ought to be noticeably different. People ought to look around and watch these marriages, not only because they've been married 40, 50, 60, 65 years, But just simply watch these marriages of two years or five years or eight years and say there's something unique about yours, something different about yours. It's not like everybody else's. You love one another. You really serve one another. The man's not in this for what he can get. He's in this for what he can give. The woman doesn't care about her own self, her own needs. She's in this to serve the family. We walk a different walk. It ought to be obvious and evident. Why? Because we're doing exactly what Scripture says. We're walking in step with the Spirit. And when we do, he directs my path. I'm not in this for me. I'm looking out for the interests of another person, which is why Jesus said, man, you love your wives like Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? He gave himself for her. I've seen guys treat other women better than their own wives. I've seen women be nicer to other men than their own husbands. 
I've seen parents nicer to neighbors' kids than their own. And I've seen kids nicer to their friends' parents than their own parents. That's not how God designed it. As believers, the best indication of a spirit-filled life happens within the context of relationships. Those closest to me, and then it begins to work out. My mate, my children, my parents, my family, my relationships in the family of God, and then it begins to manifest itself out all over the place. In Genesis chapter 2, when sin entered the world, every relationship fell apart. With me, I'm ashamed. That's why Adam covered himself. With you, I become self-centered. It's not about you anymore. I'm covering me. And with God, I hide. Even though he knows where I am, I don't want to talk to him. But when Christ comes into our life and we allow God's spirit to fill our life and to so saturate our life, every relationship in the context of that begins to change. If you follow the flow, and we won't take time to do it this morning, in Ephesians chapter 5, once I allow myself to be filled with the spirit, I begin to change. I now have a song. I sing and I praise the relationships around me begin to change. My relationship with God changed, verse 20. I've got gratitude. I give praise and adoration to the Father. With other people, in verse 21, I submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the beauty of the gospel is because Christ has a relationship with me, and I understand what he did to buy that relationship, to give himself so that I could have that relationship, and then he offers it to me freely. He gave everything so that I could have life. And once I really understand what that means and what that looks like in my life, it just simply lives itself out in the relationships around me, especially within the context of a marital relationship, especially within the context of the home. Marriage is God designed it. For that reason, he repeats it again in Ephesians 5. Same things you find in Genesis. A man leaves his father and mother, united to his wife, and they become one flesh. We submit? Absolutely. Absolutely. A willingness to place myself in the position of a servant. God designed it that way. Sadly, not every marriage functions that way. And what we have to decide, are we going to follow God's design or the world's? I've seen so many sons growing up learning to be takers and not givers, seeing women as objects instead of someone they want to serve. I see some guys looking for a maid instead of a godly woman that they can serve. God's design, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he most often do that? Sacrifice and giving his all. What do I have to do? It begins by a relationship with Christ. And then it follows itself up by allowing myself to be dominated by, controlled and consumed by his spirit. No longer in it for me, but how I can love, how I can live it out, how I can serve my mate as God intended how I can love my wife like Christ loved the church, how I can love my kids and give in front of them a model they're going to want to follow and not have to look to a whole other generation before them or behind them to find out what godly families look like. This morning we're going to end with communion. Couldn't end a sermon like this in a, in a better way. I know this sermon doesn't apply to everyone. I understand that. I know some of you have lived through incredible pains of marriage. But I also know that a lot of people in this room really do want to live a godly relationship. And they want the generation behind them to say, there goes a great couple. There goes a godly couple who love Jesus, who love one another, who really love their kids, and who serve their family well. And so this morning as we hold these elements, first the bread, then the cup, as Jesus reminds us what he did that night in the upper room, this is my body broken for you. This is where you're going to get life. 
It's not in those other things. God's not holding out on you. It's in him and him alone. So I receive my life from him. I receive forgiveness. My past, as was shared a couple of weeks ago when Ted and Sarah shared, can be totally wiped away. And I can be clean in Christ. Do not today look back, but today look in and look ahead as to what you want your marriage and your home to look like. And ask God to give it to you. And make the decision that you may need to make to make sure you do always asking you to do to let it happen. Father, in these few moments, communion stored, you come right now. I ask in the name of Jesus that as we hold these elements, we're reminded again of your sacrifice, of your love, and of your grace. And that we hear that conversation that you want to have with us, and you hear ours with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. They're going to serve you. Help the person beside you to serve them as well. The bread and the cup are in the same tray. When we're done, I'm going to lead you in it together, so hold them to everybody is served. In front of you, except in the first row, and I'll pick them up from you. But in front of you somewhere is a cup holder, and when you're done, you can place the cup there. And then Justin's going to lead us in the closing song.